Welcome to the Life Academy Podcast. Hi, friends. Doug Pratt speaking to you for the Life Academy here at First Church of Bonita Springs. And again, we consider a Christian perspective on hell and heaven. This is part two. And as in part one, I want to reaffirm that mine is just a Christian perspective, not the only one. And you are free to disagree with me. There are certain dimensions of theology that are non-negotiable. And if you part with orthodoxy in those areas, you have strayed from the gospel. And I will try to point those out. But there are many areas where different views can be acceptable. Consider the analogy of a playground for children. The fence marks out the boundaries beyond which the children are not to stray. But within the fence, they have room to play and be creative. There is room for creativity and differences of viewpoint within the boundaries of true biblical theology. And as we turn our attention to the topic vastly more pleasant than in part one of hell, to the topic of heaven, whatever we conceptualize heaven to be, its reality is something that can never be abandoned by anyone who wishes to call themselves a Christian. It is foundation. It is simply impossible to separate eternal life from the Christian gospel. The New Testament makes no sense without it. The earliest apostles recognized this. If there is no life beyond the grave, then the Christian faith is pointless. Paul is blunt in 1 Corinthians 15. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied, he says. In other words, trusting Jesus, if he did not rise again, and if we won't be able to live eternally with him, makes our faith the ultimate in foolishness. Assuming that the gospel writers were accurate in capturing his words at the very end of his life, Jesus put his own credibility on the line when he said in John chapter 14, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you will be also. Jesus promised one of the thieves on the cross next to his, today you will be with me in paradise. The Apostle Paul, in another letter known as 2 Corinthians, assured us, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in, that means our human body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built with human hands. The other New Testament writers likewise confirm that the hope of eternal life in whatever heaven might be is a non-negotiable cornerstone of the Christian faith. Well, accepting the reality of heaven is something that we therefore must all agree on if we claim to be Christians. But beyond that, the details become murky and uncertain. Some have envisioned heaven as being boring, day after day of nothing but an unending church service. But surely that caricature comes from our inability to even imagine what life in a spiritual non-corporeal existence would be like. 
and of course also our inability, so rooted as we are in time, to comprehend an existence outside time. Well, here are some of the basic truths of eternal life that the Bible teaches us. First, that all sin will be removed so that the worst parts of who we are and the parts of us that have alienated us from pure fellowship with God and others will all be cleansed and never return. You and I, for the first time in our existence, will experience total moral purity, which is unachievable in this life. Another basic truth, we will have unbroken joy an unbroken relationship with God, and pure knowledge beyond our ability to acquire in our lifetimes. We will also not have bodies, at least not with the characteristics we know and take for granted. What do we know about our human bodies? They need constant food and drink and sleep to survive. They can be corrupted. They can become ill or injured. They age, they are vulnerable, and they are totally bound by the dimensions of height and depth and width. None of those will be true in heaven. But will we ever, in a post-mortal state, inhabit some sort of body? Ah, this is a topic of a great deal of debate. Some theologians believe that we will be given resurrected bodies or spiritual bodies, and they point to the body of Jesus, described for us in the final chapters of the Gospels immediately after his resurrection. He could be seen, he could be touched, he could eat, and yet he was not bound in the same way we are by physical limits of space. Some will argue that the symbolism of the final chapters of Revelation, which talk about a new Jerusalem, indicate that we will have physical bodies on some kind of new, incorruptible planet. Others believe that our souls, or our true spiritual selves, will not be limited by a body, that the wording and the descriptions in Scripture are merely symbolic to capture things we cannot grasp and that we will be pure spirits, like angels. Still other thinkers have suggested a two-step process. First, a disembodied spiritual state in pure relationship with God immediately at death, and then some later date when the souls of believers will be united with new bodies. Roman Catholics since the Middle Ages have claimed a three-step process. First, a purgatory, that is a place of purging of sins, then a disembodied spiritual state, and finally, a new spiritual body. In recent decades, due to the phenomenal developments of modern medical science, we have had a dramatic increase in the number of men, women, and even children who have been medically dead and then returned to life and claimed that they experienced a life beyond death. The similarities of their experiences are striking, even though not all of the details are in perfect sync with one another. Scientists have not been able to adequately explain these experiences by natural causes. Dr. Mary Neal spoke at our church a couple years ago about her own life-after-death experience and has written two moving books about it 
Christian author Lee Strobel has released in mid-September of this year a new book entitled The Case for Heaven, which includes interviews with some who have had experiences like this and other experts across various scientific disciplines who are researching them. It's all quite fascinating, but we don't have all of the details put together yet. Another question that arises in the minds of most as we contemplate a spiritual existence beyond life is, can people who have died and are in heaven, whatever that is, see and hear us on earth? Is there knowledge in heaven? One intriguing clue from the New Testament that this may be the case is found in Hebrews 12. The image used by the author appears to be the ancient Olympic Games and other athletic competitions involving racing, and in those events, when competitors finished their races, they would go up into the grandstands to watch and cheer on those who yet had their races to run. The writer of Hebrews, after describing in the previous chapter a multitude of believers in the true God who had finished their lives and were in the presence of God, as witnesses. The role of a witness is to watch. It is possible that the Bible is telling us those who have died are able to watch and listen and perhaps even to cheer on those who are yet on earth. A profound question about the experience of heaven arises as we consider the relation of ourselves in their perfected and post-sin state to the sinful thoughts and actions each of us has committed during our earthly lifetimes. Are we aware of our sins in heaven? Most theologians say that we will be. And in fact, we will be even more aware than we are in our lifetime because of our human tendency to denial, forgetfulness, and self-justification. But if we are conscious of our sinfulness, does that mean that we experience guilt in heaven? Or is the grace of God so overwhelming that the pain of guilt is taken away? And are we judged in heaven? There are many biblical suggestions that judgment by a perfect, holy, and all-knowing God is inevitable. But if we are judged, does Christ then in some fashion step forward to offer his sacrifice in our place? There are also hints in the New Testament of rewards in heaven. And yet theologians struggle with how to reconcile the concept of good works and treasures stored in heaven with salvation by grace alone, given equally to all who believe. And another profound and unanswerable question arises when we consider all the people who lived before Christ came to earth and those who have lived and died in the years since who never heard the name of Christ and thus could not have believed in his name. Christian apologists have wrestled with this question for centuries. My own personal view is that God can never make a mistake. His judgments will always be just and fair. And therefore, if some people have believed in God as much as they knew of him, he always sees the inner heart. I believe C.S. Lewis likewise had this view, but it is something we simply cannot know for sure this side of heaven. And because a person can turn to God at any time up to the moment of their death and receive his mercy, we cannot be certain about the spiritual condition of a person who seemed to be an unbeliever. Because last moment conversions have happened.
having considered the clear promise of eternal life, and then having touched on many of the mysteries and uncertainties about the details of what awaits us on the other side of the veil of death, I come to the final great paradox or mystery of the Christian gospel. The smartest and even, you could say, the most self-serving thing a person can do to ensure their eternal life of blessedness and joy is to receive the grace of Christ. The brilliant 17th century Christian philosopher, mathematician, and physicist Blaise Pascal articulated what has become known as Pascal's wager. He said that a rational person has every sound reason to believe in God and place his faith in Christ. It is the smartest bet that can ever be made. If God does not actually exist, or heaven is a myth, then nothing is lost when a person dies. They simply cease to exist. But if the Bible is right, the believer stands to receive the infinite gain of heaven, whatever it is like, and avoid the disastrous loss of hell, whatever it is like. So if Pascal's logic is sound, then no thinking person should refuse the unmerited and freely offered grace of Christ. It is the best deal imaginable, and it is the ultimate enlightened self-interest. And yet that choice is rejected by many, precisely because, I suspect, their pride keeps them from admitting their need and submitting themselves to Christ. The paradox is articulated by Jesus. Whoever, he said, wants to keep their life, that is, hold on to their pride and their confidence in order to be able to save themselves and manage themselves, whoever wants to keep that kind of life will lose it. But, he said, whoever loses their life for my sake, that is, by confessing their sins and surrendering to Christ as Lord, that person who loses their life will find it, both in this earthly existence with a restored relationship to their Creator, and then forever after. I pray that everyone who hears my voice will make that wisest of all choices. This is Doug Pratt for the Life Academy. Thank you for joining us for this Life Academy episode. We encourage you to subscribe. And if you enjoy our podcast, please share it with your friends and family. 